The COVID-19 pandemic is one of the most historical events in recent history. It's going to change what books readers buy and what books authors write. And to find out how, listen to this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. Now, before we talk about the impact of the virus on reading trends, we need to talk a little bit about how trends work in the first place. And this means talking about resonance. I thought I'd done an episode about this here on Novel Marketing, but it turns out it was on my other podcast, Christian Publishing Show. And I'll have a link to that episode if you want to listen to it. But I'll give you a Cliff Notes version here. Now, resonance is a musical term. A note can resonate with a room. There's a certain tone I can hum in our bathroom, and the whole room will vibrate with that tone. And it just a little bit of sound makes a whole lot of noise in the room. And if I move my voice up or down just a little bit, the effect is lost. It's why some tones can break a wine glass while others can't at the same volume. Uh, in physics, it's like, uh, think of it as like pushing a child on a swing. If you're in resonance with the frequency of the swing, you're pushing the child as the swing swings away from you. And you're encouraging the swing in the direction that it is already wanting to go. And if you get the frequency wrong, you miss your push or you push the child off the swing. So what does resonance look like? Well, for a novelist, you have resonance when your story resonates with the story going on in someone's heart. The challenges they're facing, the emotions that are being faced by your protagonist are the same things that somebody is feeling in their own heart. And they're like, yes, this is a story for me. In nonfiction, you have resonance when someone says, yes, this is what I've been feeling recently. And that is what you want, because when somebody feels that way, that's when they tell their friends about your book. Now, I'm going to be using the word zeitgeist a lot in this episode, and I do apologize. I I feel this word is super pretentious, uh, but it is the right word. (laughs) It's the most useful word. And zeitgeist means the general intellectual, moral, and cultural climate of an era. So how do you find resonance? Well, it's about three things. It's about timing. If you're too early, you're out of step with the zeitgeist. You're pushing the swing before the swing even gets to you. If you're too late, you're cliche. You're pushing after the swing has already gotten out of reach. And this is why it's important to read books in your genre, but also to observe the world around you. And I'll explain why reading books in your genre, while it was a good strategy Two months ago, it's no longer a good strategy because everything is about to change. That swing is at its apex, and it's about to change directions. Uh, Resonance is also about audience. Each community vibrates at its own frequency. And saying your book is for everyone is like standing at a bank of swings trying to push all of the children at the same time. You have to watch the motion of a specific swing in order to push at the right time. You can't resonate with every community. Uh, Being in sync with one community will put you out of sync with other communities. Uh, Women in nursing homes and men on basketball teams don't read the same books. Uh, You need to know who your book is not for so you know who you can afford to ignore. And that way you don't have to worry if they're unhappy about your book. If men on basketball teams don't like your romance, that's okay. (laughs) They're not your target reader. 
As you will hear in a moment, some readers are looking for the exact opposite things in their books as a result of the recent changes to culture and society. And while we're all in this together, we're not all responding in the same way. And as an author, you need to know your readers and how they're responding if you want your writing to resonate with them. Uh, and then I also recommend that you join the community that you want to reach so you can listen to what they're saying, their hopes, their fears, their aspirations, etc. If they won't accept you, you won't be able to find resonance with them. And if you come into a community or a genre trying to fix it, you will fail, right? If you're trying to write science fiction to fix science fiction because you don't like science fiction, everyone who does like science fiction will disagree with you and hate your book. So don't try to fix Star Wars. Star Wars isn't broken. Don't turn Luke Skywalker into a coward. You'll get a rebellion on your hands and not the good kind. The rebellion of your fans wanting you to be fired. So uh, resonance is also about listening. So this goes along with audience. You have to listen to your audience. You have to listen to the music around you to be in tune with it. And what is interesting is that the main kind of music, the main tone of the music is changing for, for perhaps only the third time in my lifetime. Uh, the other times were the fall of the Berlin Wall, September 11th, and now with COVID-19. These are events that affected everyone, and they are uh, events that change people's views on the world. Now, the music's always changing, right? Just like when you're listening to music, the music is vibrant and changing, and every you know second the notes are different than the notes before. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about micro trends like Y2K coming and going. We're talking about the whole key of the music is shifting, and these are very exciting times for me to observe, uh, but they're also very scary times if you're a business or an author or trying to stay up with the music. You have to really listen carefully, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode. Or put another way, you need to watch the swings very carefully to see when they change directions, because it's really easy to say, hey, this swing has been going up for the last 10 years. It will continue going up forever, but at some point, the swing can't go up anymore, and suddenly it will not only start going down, but it will start moving in the opposite direction. For every action, there's an equal, equal and opposite reaction. And if you look at a swing long enough, if you watch a bank of swings, you can predict when that swing will change predictions. And I spend a lot of time observing culture, and these are my predictions based off of my understanding of the past. In fact, to go back in the past, I think it's really helpful to look at some times when the zeitgeist has changed. So one really easy example, and this is kind of a lesser touchstone, but it's Y2K, right? At leading up to Y2K, people were very nervous about uh, the future, right? The computers were all going to break and we'll be living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And there were some books that were able to take advantage of this trend. So there's the direct nonfiction book by Michael Hyatt. I, I think it's called The Millennium Bomb was his book. It was his New York Times bestselling book that put Michael Hyatt on the map. A lot of people forget this, that his first book was a Y2K survival guide book. But also in fiction, Jerry Jenkins uh, had three books, three left behind books that came out in 1999. That was not by accident because people's vague fears of the future, he was able to write religious books that played to those vague fears of the future. And even though there was nothing in his books really about computers, they weren't really about that. They still played to that emotional sense and they sold like crazy. I think he sold roughly a billion dollars. Yes, billion with a B worth of left behind books across the entirety of the series. And he did that because he was able to maintain resonance and he struck while the iron was hot. And so during that peak year of fear in 1999, 
he sold millions and millions of copies of his books. Uh, so then September 11th happened and the zeitgeist changed, right? And the best way to illustrate how the zeitgeist changed is with the Batman stories. So before September 11th, Batman was fighting crime. Now, during the 1990s, uh, crime rates were falling. There was less crime each year than the year before. So, you know, if you try to imagine like the 80s when New York was covered in graffiti and crack cocaine and crime was everywhere and people were afraid to live in New York City. By the time you get to September 11th, that's not really true anymore. New York is cleaned up. The major urban areas are all seeing historically low numbers of crime. In some parts of the country, they've never seen crime as low as it is at that time. And the fear of criminals, the fear of the mob, uh, the fear of crooks is not a fear that normal people feel. And so the uh, Batman films that came out in the late 90s didn't resonate very much because the bad guys just felt cheesy. <laughs> and sure, there was some other reasons why they felt cheesy, but there was also the fundamental shift in culture. Well, then there's a terrorist attack that happens. And Batman reboots and transforms from a crime fighter to a terrorist fighter. And if you look at the Batman films that are super popular, suddenly Batman is fighting international terrorists like Ra's al Ghul and Bane. Now, I want to underline something because this is really important. As you adapt to this new world, you don't have to change everything. In fact, you don't have to change very much. Batman didn't change that much to shift from fighting criminals to fighting terrorists. In fact, the Joker came back, right? He was a crime lord in his previous iteration, and he's back as a domestic terrorist. He's no longer motivated by money. He's no longer greedy and crazy. Now he's just crazy. <laughs> so, um, And the stories worked. This new world worked. And Batman, the terrorist fighter, resonated with audiences. It resonated with readers. And those are the kinds of minor tweaks you're going to need to be making to your books to resonate with this new post-COVID-19 zeitgeist. If I were a publishing company, I would be completely reevaluating my whole publishing schedule uh, to see how books, the books scheduled to come out, will resonate with readers as the swing starts to fall the other way. So with all of that out of the way, let's talk about predictions. I have 12 predictions about what the post-pandemic future is going to look like. I would love to hear your feedback on these predictions. Uh, so feel free to chime in on the Facebook group, and you're also welcome to share this episode in other Facebook groups and discuss them there. So I'm not expecting me, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not expecting to be able to predict the future perfectly, but I do suspect many of these predictions will be on the money, and I'm curious to hear what you think. So let's start off with an easy one. And the first prediction is that children's books not only are hot, but they are going to stay hot for uh, the upcoming future. So as you know, celebrities right now are actively reading children's books on YouTube and on Twitter live for audiences as all the children are locked home with their parents. And parents are desperately buying up children's books as much as they can to give their children an alternative to all of the screen time that they're consuming. So children's books are up across the board, and I expect this will continue. But I don't think this is a blip. I think this is the beginning of a major trend because there is a potential condom shortage. There's a disruptions in the rubber supply. I've got a link to some news articles about this. 
And we're already expecting a baby boom, right? If you thought that a three-day blizzard baby boom was bad, just imagine the three-month lockdown baby boom, right? So we may see a huge surge of babies. And some people are talking about, you know, maybe this will be demarcated as a new generation of children who grow up in a world of face masks and of no handshaking, right? A child in this new Generation Q, the quarantines, uh, when they see a handshake on a TV show or movie, they'll be like, oh, that's that quaint thing people used to do in the olden days, right? They'll have a very different view of the future. Maybe, maybe not. I don't, I don't know if the new generation will be called Generation Q, but I do expect the parents of this baby boom to be buying lots of children's books, both now and in the future. So if you are thinking about writing a book for children or getting into the picture book game, now is a good time. <laughs> so uh, my second prediction is uh, that people will continue longing for escape. And let me explain what I talk about, uh, what I mean when I talk about this. So it's no surprise uh, to me anyway that the most popular video game right now is Animal Crossing New Horizons. So according to VentureBeat, this game is now more popular than Mario and more popular than Zelda. And what makes this remarkable is that this is a game where you pick flowers, go fishing, and farm fruit trees. There's no conflict. There's no bad guys. There's no violence. Um, nothing bad can happen to you long term. The worst thing that happens is you get sent back home to continue playing the game. And yet this game, this very peaceful, gentle, calm, relaxing game is incredibly popular with adults. All right, this game is like book genres, like Amish, that give readers that same sense of calm. They're wanting an escape from the scariness of the world around them, and so they want to go to their Animal Crossing island to experience peace. They want to go to a quiet Amish village where the worst thing to happen is not very bad. Now, on the other hand, other people are looking for escape. And the other very popular video game right now is a game called Doom Eternal. Yes, it's a sequel to that Doom, the controversial one from the 90s where players shoot demons from hell with a shotgun. Blood and gore are the central appeal. And the reason why this game is so popular is the same reason why Animal Crossing's New Horizons is so popular. You would think they're completely different games. One is totally peaceful, one is totally violent, and yet they both offer an escape from the current reality. It's just different kinds of escape. So in Doom, you are conquering the demons. At the end, you have defeated the forces of hell with the power of your shotgun, and that is how you escape. You're winning, you're beating the evil in the game. Whereas in New Horizons, there is Animal Crossing New Horizons, there's no evil at all. There's no curse, nothing bad can happen to you. They're both escape, and the psychological motivation uh, for players is very similar. And so think about, as you're crafting your story, how it can give people an escape. And there's different ways of doing it, and you can't mix them. <laughs> Readers are wanting either the Doom Eternal approach, where it's conquering the evil, and the evil is very visceral in front of them, or they're wanting Animal Crossing approach. And I feel like both extremes are going to be more popular in the future than they were in the past. There's always people wanting to escape stress and do it with fiction, right? Escape is one of the three main motivations for reading books. The others are entertainment and education. And I talk about that in other places. But I really feel like escape is an even more popular, even more powerful motivation for readers now. And so think about how you can play to that in your books if you want them to be more resonant. All right, my third prediction is that suffering together will become a more popular trope in fiction. 
Uh, so suffering together is a theme that I think that will be more resonant with readers in this next season. So in a lot of stories, the protagonist goes through their dark moment, their suffering moment at the end of Act 2. It's a moment of isolation. It's a moment of loneliness where they have to pull themselves up out of the darkness, arise new, and defeat the evil, whether it's the evil within or the evil without or what have you. And typically, that's a very lonely event because that is what has resonated with American readers. Americans are very individualistic. It's why we like baseball more than we like soccer, right? If you look at a soccer game, the camera is zoomed way out and you see lots of people working together. And that doesn't resonate with us as much as the one man with his weapon, his bat standing against the crowd, right? There's the whole army of defenders all on their different bases and in the outside with all trying to defeat the one man who's trying to beat them all and go around the bases to score a run. That is what has resonated with Americans and that will continue to resonate with Americans because we're an individualistic people. But I feel that in this next season, that community suffering where we as a community are going through the dark moment of the story together will resonate more. And this will be interesting because it's more of a kind of Eastern or even just European style um, worldview. And I think that it will be more resonant with more readers in the U.S. And I realize many of you listening are from around the world and you're not necessarily writing exclusively for a U.S. audience, although I suspect almost everyone is wanting to sell in the U.S. audience, even if you don't live in the United States, just because there's so many book readers in the U.S. market uh, there's too much money there to ignore it. So anyway, uh, suffering together. Think of ways where in your story, the protagonist can suffer with others, where they're all in it together. They're in that dark moment together, where it's the community going through the storm rather than the man or the woman uh, going through the storm alone. Also, I'd be curious how this impacts romance, where the romance story is more the uh, couple as a team fighting against uh, conflict from outside rather than conflict between the couple. Just curious that those kinds of stories uh, might resonate better with readers in this new post-pandemic world. Uh, my fourth pr prediction is that man against nature conflicts will continue to grow in popularity. So in modern times, man against nature plots have failed to resonate with readers because nature stopped being scary as we conquered it with technology. Uh, it's hard to relate to the fear our ancestors felt ab about the big bad wolf when the big bad wolf is not an actual threat. In fact, we're concerned that the big bad wolf might go extinct, right? It's hard to really be afraid of the big bad wolf. Now, like many of the things I'm going to be talking about, the trend of a man against nature conflicts growing has already started, right? So we saw starting 10 or 15 years ago, uh, the rise of climate change plot lines or like sci-fi with a climate change connection where there's a coming cataclysm and we must act now to overcome or survive this coming cataclysm. And while those plots resonated with a small percentage of readers in the past, I suspect those kinds of conflicts are going to resonate with more readers in the future. Nature has just gotten a whole lot more scary. <laughs> and COVID-19 is likely to be with us for a while. It's an RNA virus like influenza. And RNA viruses mutate faster than any other kind of virus. 
This means it won't just go away. It will likely return, and it may return for decades, just like influenza returned over and over again after its initial kind of first three waves that so were so scary. And that's scary, right? And, and when the second one hits and when the third wave hits, that's when you know suddenly nature has really gotten scary, and that fear will become a deep-seated fear of nature that you can resonate with with your stories. You almost need to resonate with those stories because ultimately what happens in your story, your characters overcome that which they are afraid of. And so while man against man conflicts have been kind of predominant in the 20th century and for you know good reason, right? We had two global wars in the 20th century and man against man was the primary conflict. Now, for most of us, we don't fear our neighbors, right? If you live in the United States, you're not afraid Mexico is going to invade or Canada is going to invade. There's not a lot of fear of like invasion or even of war. And this other fear of you know nature, I think, is becoming a bigger fear in a lot of people's hearts and minds. And it's something that you need to think about as you're writing your story. It doesn't mean you all have to have, you know, storms and, you know, nature as the primary antagonist, but you may think about how can I work nature into my story as a character? It doesn't have to be the antagonist, but maybe having it as a antagonist will help your story get a little bit more interesting. You know, your characters are doing their normal thing and a storm hits them. A tornado comes, right? It doesn't have to be a plague. I, and I, I want you to hear this. I don't want everyone to start writing plague books <laughs> because while there will be some market for plague books and I'm and, and anticipating five years from now for there to be two or three COVID-19 movies that will all come out at the same month, um, that's not how you resonate. That That's the kind of shortcut to resonate. Uh, what I want you to understand is how people are changing in their psychological motivations of what they're wanting from their books and how you can satisfy them. If somebody is deeply afraid of nature, deeply afraid of viruses, and you can speak to that fear in an indirect way, your book is going to resonate with them, even if they don't know that that's why it's resonating with them. And that's what's going to cause them to tell their friends about it and cause you to sell a bunch more copies. All right, next prediction. Prediction number five, man against society. Conflicts will grow in popularity with readers. So most of your readers have suffered more from the lockdown than they have from the virus itself. For every one person who's projected to die of COVID-19 in the United States, at least 100 people have lost their jobs. So it's over 10 million people have lost their jobs so far, and the projected death toll is 100,000. It keeps getting revised down. But for the sake of this, let's say keep the math easy for me as a podcaster, let's say 100,000 people die and 10 million people lose their jobs. So no additional people lose their jobs and the death toll ends up being what it is. The result of this is that there's a lot of people who've lost their jobs and that's the pain, the psychological pain that they're taking into the future. And I want you to picture uh, the young woman who fought hard to get out of an abusive situation uh, by working as a waitress and to get her children out of an abusive situation. And now she's trying to decide between being able to feed her kids and having to move back in with her abuser because she's out of money, right? She's not harmed by the virus. She's harmed by the lockdown, by the response to the virus. And by people she feels don't listen to her, right? And her resentment is something that potentially you can resonate with with your book. Doesn't mean you have to, doesn't mean you should, but it is something there that you can connect to if you want your book to connect with readers. 
Now, my next prediction is like the other side of that coin, and that is that society against man conflicts will also grow in popularity with readers. So for readers who did not lose their jobs, for uh, readers who are not suffering from the economic changes, for them, the primary psychological pain that they're going to take into the future is the fear of the virus itself. And from their perspective, the reckless actions of these irresponsible kids are putting everyone at risk. Their Lone Ranger individualist is no longer the hero. He is the villain. What a change from 100 years ago in what people were reading. So the idea of we're all trying to stay safe together and the bad guy is refusing to cooperate. This concept of, you know, the man is putting the society at risk. I think this conflict will also resonate with readers as well. I don't think they'll both resonate with the same kinds of readers. though. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be uh, political. I really try to not be political in this podcast. But for some of these things, you do have to realize that there are political undertones and how someone's and politics kind of impacts how they see the world and how they're responding to the virus will affect which kinds of books that they read. Because depending on someone's worldview, they're more drawn to one kind of book as opposed to another kind of book. All right. Uh, then seventh prediction is a second retail apocalypse is coming. So I'm going to transition here a little bit away from fiction and talk about things that affect both fiction and nonfiction. And one of the things that affects us all is how our books are sold, what the business world looks like, what the publishing companies look like in a post-COVID economy. And companies who resisted going online, like Half Price Books, are suffering. And, and they're laying off employees and they're really, really hurting. More so than companies that started with an online-first approach, like Thrift Books. Half Price Books and Thrift Books, you would think, are very similar companies because they both sell used books. And yet one is really suffering, while the other one is probably having some of its best months ever because people are looking for books to buy and Amazon is deprioritizing books to make room for toilet paper and hand sanitizer. But this isn't the only thing that's going on uh, to impact the retail world. People are not only shifting their non-food shopping online, they're doing way more buying online than they ever have before, but they're also switching their shopping to hybrid stores, grocery stores that also sell other things, the super grocery stores like Walmart and Target or Super HEB if you live in Texas. And these are allowed to stay open. So in most towns, if you need to buy socks, the only place to buy socks is at the grocery store in town that is also selling socks. And these super stores are drawing customers away that normally would have bought their socks at a JCPenney's or a Dillard's. They're now buying their socks at Walmart, and some of them will never go back, right? Once they experience Target or once they experience Walmart and realize it wasn't as bad as they were led to believe that everyone there isn't walking around with shotguns or whatever it is they think about Walmart users or everyone at Target's all stuck up. Once they realize that it's a normal store like any other, some of them will stay going to those grocery stores. So the trend that we've already seen of people leaving the shopping malls customers leaving the shopping malls, stores leaving the shopping malls, this is going to be accelerated and put on overdrive. And uh, malls that were already struggling are going to close. <laughs> we're going to look for mergers, buyouts, and closures of major department stores as they struggle to make a reason for their existence in this post-COVID world. I'm also predicting uh, retailers to start adding groceries to their lineup. One, because groceries are really hot right now. Right? Like my grocery store, I have to wait in line 
uh, sometimes for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just to get into the grocery store uh, because demand is so high and the social distancing rules are so high. Social distancing rules likely that will not go away for the foreseeable future. You know, Even as the economies open back up, no one is talking about canceling the social distancing rules. No one's saying, oh, you don't need to wear a mask. We may be wearing masks for years. And what we're going to see, or at least what I'm predicting, is that uh, as the rolling lockdowns replace the kind of global lockdowns, right? So France locks down the whole country. Once France opens up, the United States opens up the whole country, you'll see local regions locked down for short periods of time, uh, right? Paris will lock down for a week or two weeks because of a, an outbreak, or maybe even certain neighborhoods in Paris will lock down. And these rolling lockdowns may persist for years. And we saw this after many other plagues where you'll have kind of regional lockdowns. You saw this especially after bubonic plague. It would hit a town and that town locked down for time and then it would it would pass. And um, if, if you're a retailer, you want to stay open <laughs> during that regional lockdown. So how do you do that? You add groceries. So look for traditional retailers to try to enter the grocery game and for grocery stores to be more aggressive in replacing traditional retailers. So your Best Buy might get replaced with a grocery store that also sells electronics, which we already have in Texas, grocery stores that sell electronics. So along with this, you know, what's the impact on books? What's the impact on publishers? I think that uh, bookstores and shopping malls are going to struggle. And um, I don't think Barnes & Noble is going to go out of business uh, because they just recently got recapitalized. Uh, they're going to be, I'm predicting, kind of like Ford going into the 2008 recession. So while General Motors and Chrysler really suffered, Ford didn't suffer as much because they had just recently gotten an infusion of capital. And that infusion of capital um, meant that they were better positioned for the turmoil. And Barnes & Noble just got an infusion of capital. They just got purchased by a new set of owners. <laughs> and those new owners are not looking to cut uh, Barnes & Noble and write that off as a loss, I don't think. So the question is, you know, what's the impact going to be on indie bookstores? And I think that for indie bookstores located in shopping malls, it's going to be hard for them in the short term. And another thing that's going to be hard for indie bookstores is a lot of them are coffee shops which means that all of the restrictions on restaurants are also affecting those bookstores. So, you know, some countries, like I think Spain, one of the first kinds of stores they allowed to reopen as Spain started reopening was bookstores, right? They were on the first list. But I don't know if the bookstores that had coffee shops built in uh, were allowed to open, right? Because normal coffee shops aren't allowed to open in Spain yet. So I, if I were a coffee shop, I would feel like I be, was being cheated if the bookstore coffee shop was allowed uh, to open. And so I think it'll be tricky to navigate, but I think long-term indie bookstores will continue to exist, although some of the ones that exist now may go out of business and be replaced for new ones. But I think the demand for a bookstore, a place to go, a third place uh, that has that kind of literary feel will continue, and that demand will cause those bookstores to continue to exist into the future. Uh, that said, Amazon has only gotten more powerful. I think they've hired almost 200,000 new employees since the beginning of the pandemic. Like that is, those are numbers that are not conscionable. Like that's like two NFL football stadiums worth of new employees, and they're still struggling to keep up with demand. When I, I placed an order on Amazon recently, and it was like two weeks of shipping and backlog. That's how backlog they are. They're turning off features of their website that encourage people to make more purchases and. This is a lot of new customers that are coming to Amazon, and a lot of those customers are going to stick around for a long time, and they're going to continue buying their books from Amazon. And so for those of you who have been trying to avoid Amazon as a partner, retail partner, that's going to get harder in this post-pandemic world. 
Traditional publishers, I think, are seeing a problem with not having a direct relationship with their readers, especially as Amazon has, at least in the short term, deprioritized books to make room for toilet paper, like I said earlier. Uh, but indie novelists, I'm predicting, are going to have a really great Q1 and Q2, since they already have that direct relationship with readers and they already have an Amazon first model, and especially an ebook first model. So while paper books are being locked up in the supply chain, ebooks are flowing just fine. So if you are making all of your money from ebooks, you may have some of your best months ever during this lockdown as people are looking for things to read. All right, prediction seven, and that is that the middle class will continue to split in two. And this is really important as you craft your stories because this is long-term one of the biggest things that will affect the psychology of your readers. So this is an economic trend that's already been existing, right? There's nothing new about this and this split in the middle class is actually happening kind of along the lines of the academy, uh, which is fascinating. <laughs> I've been observing this uh, ever since I graduated from college, that we have basically two groups of, pe- of students leaving college. We have the biz STEM groups, business, science, technology, engineering, and medicine. And then we have the liberal arts groups. And while the biz STEM majors were able to work from home and they're seeing their salaries rise and they're paying off their student loans, the liberal arts majors are moving back in with their parents. They're struggling to pay off their loans. And they were the ones who were the first to get their jobs cut, right? As a society, uh, we decided, or the powers that be decided that the arts were (laughs) non-essential. So if your job is in the arts and you couldn't work from home, you lost your job, which is really tragic. And this concept of debt, which I think for most of your readers, many of your readers will be in more debt next year than they were last year, right? Just because of all of the economic disruption. This is a stress and it's an ongoing stress, right? That stress of having debt hanging over you. It's the one stress that came um, Animal Crossing New Horizon. It's really easy to get into debt in that game and constantly be trying to pay off your debt. And it's, you know, why do they put that in the game? Because it resonates with the people who are playing it. The millennials who are paying it that are still trying to pay off uh, their enormous school loans um, really resonate with being in in debt in the game and and the fun of paying it off in the game. So it's relatively easy to pay it off in the game uh, is really fun. So think about ways that this economic uncertainty is changing kind of the emotions of your readers and look for ways to adapt your story if you're writing fiction to resonate with them with that economic uncertainty. You know, you know, your protagonist, if they were promised something that was going to help them, right, and, they, and then that turns out to be wrong and they feel betrayed by the authorities in their life, right, that's going to resonate with millennials who are told that going to any college and any major was going to help and it didn't matter. They're feeling betrayed now as they find out that what major they picked has picked a direction for the rest of their life and it's really hard to get off one set of railroad tracks and onto another set of railroad tracks. This is also something that nonfiction writers can address directly, right? This is going to be a really good year for Dave Ramsey and, and people like him, financial advisors who help people get out of debt, help people manage uh, financial uncertainty. All right, the eighth prediction is that some readers may remain shut in and lonely for years. Uh, so for older and immune-compromised readers, it may be years before it is safe for them to go back to the lives they knew before the pandemic. So that isolation, that loneliness that you're feeling right now, they will continue to feel for months or even years because of just how contagious this virus is. You know, We haven't seen a virus this contagious in a very, very long time, and it's very hard to contain. 
and also one that mutates so quickly. So even as we start to contain it and as the treatments get better, it will fight back, right? It's not like it's some static thing. This loneliness is something that your books can speak to. And keep that in mind as well, especially if you're writing to an older demographic. Uh, your characters may be part of what holds them through this, what for them is not a sprint, but will be a marathon. All right, prediction number nine. I have a couple of quick predictions coming up. Uh, this one is that homeschooling will be a hot topic amongst raiders. We're already seeing this happen. Right, A lot of parents, almost all of them actually, are homeschooling. It's not real homeschooling, though. It's like crisis schooling. But a lot of parents who are on the fence about homeschooling are going to be like, well, gosh, if I'm, we're going to be having these rolling lockdowns in the future. Why not just go whole hog and actually use curriculum designed to be done at home rather than trying to adapt classroom curriculum for the home and Zoom and all of that? And I already have you know, people in my mastermind groups who make homeschool curriculum or work with homeschoolers are seeing demand just off the charts, like an order of magnitude increase and what they have to offer. So for those of you who write for homeschool market, that homeschool market has just gotten a whole lot bigger. And what will be interesting to watch, and I don't have any predictions in this regard, is how that will change homeschooling, right? Because homeschooling used to be very quirky, right? It was a very small subset of the population, and it was not representative of the population. So it tended to be um, very... Uh, different culturally, I'll say, and we'll get into what those differences are in this episode. Uh, but now as kind of general mainstream people enter homeschooling, I wouldn't be surprised if in the long term it changes homeschooling in ways that may never change back. I don't know. I don't have a, a solid prediction there, but but it is something that I, as an observer of culture, will be looking at <laughs> into the future. All right. Now, prediction 10 is that dating, marriage, and divorce will all be hot topics in 2021. In, in the second half of 2020. So I'm predicting that 2021 will look statistically a lot like 1946 looked in terms of marriage and divorce rates. So for those of you who don't know, I wrote a book on dating and relationships uh, in a past life. So I'm something I actually know a lot about and have dug into uh, the research on this. And if you look at a chart of divorce rates, it's, it's kind of slowly ramps up during the 20th century with some jig, jig jags. And there's the biggest jig jag in 1946, where uh, the divorce rate, I want to say triples. I haven't looked at the charts in a couple of years, but I want to say it goes up either 3x or 5x. So 300%, 500% increase in divorces in one year, and then went right back down. What happened? So what happened was the trauma of World War II was more than about half a million marriages can handle. So the casualties of World War II was about half a million marriages broke up. For whatever reason, right? Maybe the wife saw another man while the GI was away in Germany, or maybe, you know, the reverse happened. You know, there are lots of specific stories, but statistically speaking, a huge spike in divorce, while simultaneously a huge spike in marriage, right? As other GIs came back and married their best girl, right? They were like Captain America who didn't get frozen in the ice. And so we saw a marriage boom a divorce boom, and then a subsequent baby boom. So I've already predicted the baby boom earlier for other reasons. This is another reason why that baby boom will be uh, accentuated. Now, the reason why I'm predicting that we're going to see a marriage boom is that if you were single, this lockdown has been the worst, right? It has been solitary confinement. But unlike prisoners who are allowed out one hour and 24, you've been locked in for weeks, sometimes months, depending on what part of the world you live in. 
that is psychologically damaging to be alone that long. And I'm observing this in solitary people that I know, single people who going into the pandemic didn't have a significant other. They weren't married. They didn't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And even people who did have a boyfriend and girlfriend but weren't married are experiencing incredible trauma, psychological trauma. And when this ends, they are going to be ready to get married <laughs> and ready to start dating if they don't have somebody. And so while a lot of marriages are not going to handle the psychological trauma of the stress, right? Just like the war, World War II was very stressful and ended a bunch of marriages. A lot of marriages, right, were only being held together by the husband and wife being apart for a big part of the day. And now that they're forced together without any breaks from each other, that will be difficult. We're also going to see a boom in marriages. So there's going to be a huge churn. It's going to be like, uh, statistically, somebody putting a pitchfork into the hay and throwing it up in the air, and it's all going to come and settle down over the next five years. And this is going to be something that people are looking for books to help them navigate. <laughs> so nonfiction books on all three of these topics are going to be uh, really popular, especially for that marriage that's on the ropes and they're they're not wanting to get divorced. And they're wanting to patch things together. Man, this is a really good time to be a marriage counselor because there's a lot of marriages that are under the crucible right now. And I will say, if you survive this crucible, your marriage is probably going to be good <laughs> for a good while because uh, anything that can be shaken loose is being shaken loose uh, right now. And I think that all three of these themes are things that can work in fiction as well. You don't have to, but I think it'll be even more resonant, that deep loneliness of trying to find somebody. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see kind of an overall boom in romance books, actually, um, as people are looking for something that resonates with those uh, pains in their heart. All right, my 11th prediction is that readers will be struggling with depression and grief. This isn't this is another easy one. We're closing out with an easy one, but there's a lot of people who are dying alone, and this is very psychologically painful for those who uh, remain. In fact, this is one of the most tragic elements of the COVID-19 crisis is this grief and this death and this lack of ability to reconcile in person at the end of someone's life. So, you know, I remember um, the death of my grandfather and being able to reconcile my relationship with him, right? We were able to apologize for everything that apologize and say, I love you. And we had a really special moment at the end. And, and he did this with like his whole family because he was, you know, he died over several days and we, we knew it was coming. It was this, that it was a very sad time, but it's also a really sweet time as everything that needed to be said was said. And we had really good closure. And the tragedy of the pandemic is that that's not happening, right? Maybe you're having FaceTime and a nurse is holding the iPad and you can't really be alone and really say what you want to say or, or you have to say it and there's somebody else who's there. And these are psychological pains that people are going to be taking into their next decade and they're going to need help navigating them and either through fiction or through nonfiction. These are ways that you can resonate just like with the others. And it's also something to be cognizant of. Now, this grief, at least so far as I'm recording this, is not um, well distributed geographically. So as I'm recording this, most of those deaths have been uh, in the New York State area in uh, the United States. And, and I don't know where the specific regions are in Europe and then the other places. But I suspect as the pandemic continues, right, because the whole idea of flattening the curve is that we're extending the pandemic, <laughs> right? It's not, it's, instead of it all happening all at once and then going away, the flattening of the curve is also an extending of the curve. If you look at the graphs, you know, we're looking at a much longer pandemic because we're pulling down 
the spike. And there's there's reasons for that. I'm not here to, to, to criticize that. I'm just here to talk about or support it, frankly. <laughs> I'm just here to say, as an author, how do you react to the world as it is, not as you want it to be or as you would want it to change? And I think it's really important to kind of speak to that grief, to speak to that sorrow, or at least be aware of it in your readers. All right, the 12th and final prediction is that readers ultimately will be flooded with optimism and prosperity, quite frankly. Uh, so if you look at plagues of the past, I think almost all of them, once the plague passes, you are left with a younger, healthier, wealthier population of survivors who are full of optimism. There's this, I didn't get killed by the bombs, and so I am invulnerable kind of hubris that happens after uh, a plague. And it leads to big things being built and big changes in society being made. So after the Black Death, uh, we saw that you know the serfs were hit really hard. They died at disproportionate numbers, and they gained as a result, or in the decades after the Black Death, uh, power, freedoms, and money. Right? It was a lot harder to oppress the peasants when the lord next door was offering them better conditions, more rights, and uh, better pay, <laughs> because that lord next door was also desperate for workers. Right? It changed the supply and demand, and arguably permanently improved the lot of the poor in Europe. So it was really terrible to be poor in Europe before the Black Death. And after the Black Death, it went from being really terrible to be poor to just being terrible to be poor. It was still terrible, uh, but it wasn't as bad because the peasants had more power as a result. And they also had a lot more wealth as, you know, you'd have families where uh, a lot of the wealth would be funneled to just a handful of surviving uh, people, which actually was really disruptive in the short term of the economy because there was lots of goods that didn't need to be manufactured anymore because there was so much left over. Now, we are not seeing death anything like what they saw in the Black Death, but we even saw with the Spanish flu, you know, post-Spanish flu, we saw the Roaring Twenties as there was this wave of optimism, this wave of uh, hubris, and, and, and arguably we flew too high in the Twenties, which led to the Great Depression. And there's a whole lot to be said about all of that, and I'm not going to say it, but it's a fascinating historical time but I am expecting something like that to happen once the pandemic ultimately passes. That, uh, and it, it'll probably be several years, and unless the vaccines are magical. <laughs> and some RNA vaccines are, and some RNA vaccines are not. And I'm not enough of a scientist to, to predict which it will be. Um, but once the pandemic passes, uh, those that survive the storm, you know, there will be, if, if, even after a real storm, like with thunder and lightning, right? There's this freshness in the air, this life that happens after, right? After a fire, there's this explosion of growth as the ashes of the fire f come into the soil and fertilize the soil. And then the rains come and there's this explosion of life and of growth. And so ultimately that's going to be the result of this season as well. So I realize this is kind of a longer term prediction. And I know right now it feels very dark and very scary and not all of us are going to survive, right? We're all in this together. We're suffering together, like I talked about in one of my earlier predictions. But there will be light. There will be uh, rain and sunshine and birds will sing again. And uh, that will be what your stories in the future will need to resonate with. So I hope this has been helpful, this kind of summary of the predictions. And our sponsor today is the book launch Blueprint, uh, which I want you to imagine releasing your book. You've worked years on this and you release it. And after a couple of months, you've sold 
only a few dozen copies. And the only reviews you have are from your own friends and family. What went wrong? Your book launch failed. And this is what happens with so many books. In fact, I would say arguably the majority of books have a poor book launch. Successful book launches don't just happen. They require smart work. They require a plan. And in the book launch blueprint, James L. Rubart, bestselling author, and I will teach you how to craft the kind of book launch that hits the charts rather than hitting the dust. So this is a special course where we will be coaching you day by day through the course. All of the students will be going through day one together. We'll all be going through day two together. You'll be sharing your ideas with each other, and we will be giving you feedback on those ideas, which means registration will be closing soon on this course. So all of our other courses you can buy anytime, but that is not the case with this course. This course we only open up once a year, and sometimes once every 18 months. So I'm going to say, if you have a book coming out in the next 18 months, now is the time to sign up for the Book Launch Blueprint. And you can find out more about that at authormedia.com. And if you are a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, you get a, f- a special bonus uh, when you get the Book Launch Blueprint. You also get my course, How to Get Booked as a Podcast Guest. And if you've already purchased that course, you get the amount you spent on that course deducted, 100% of the amount of that course deducted from the cost of the book launch blueprint. You can find out more information about the patrons-only discount at patreon.com. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Carrie Dawes, author of The Ember Series. A hurricane in a series of unexplained fires hits too close to home, and what will it cost Inspector Cassandra McCarthy to protect the citizens of Silver Heights? Thank you, Carrie Dawes, for being a patron. And if you would like to be a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, you can find out how to do that at novelmarketing.com. And if you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to help the show, you can. Just share this episode on a Facebook group. In fact, this particular episode really will make for great Facebook group discussions. I know I am wrong about at least one of my predictions. I just don't know which ones those are. And so I'd love to see some conversation. And I think it's really helpful to speculate about the future. Even if we can't see it completely, we can, based off of our understanding of the past, have some idea of what is coming so we're not flying blind. Even the wise cannot see all ends, but the wise can see a few. You have been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get show notes and see the blog post version of this episode or learn how you can subscribe to get new audio episodes delivered to your phone automatically, you can find all of that at novelmarketing.com. Thank you so much for listening.